Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported by Mind and Child, which offers a video-based Parenting 101 course designed by two child psychologists to teach the core parenting skills every family needs, especially when you have kids 12 and under. As a dad of two kids who are now young adults, this would have been amazing for us about 10 years ago. Parenting 101 is ideal for families who are struggling with behavior issues and for families who are just doing okay but want to tune up. In fact, one of the developers of this course, Dr. Aaron Averett, was a guest on this podcast in May of 2022, earlier this year. You can learn more and get the course at mindandchild.com. That's mindandchild.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo National Bank online at anb.com and to the electronic payment solutions processor CoCard online at tracercocard.com. Our November-December issue comes out this week and you can read the free e-edition at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Julie Granger. Julie is the founder of the Sister Bear Foundation, an organization that provides adaptive fitness and wellness resources for adults who might be recovering from a spinal cord injury, a brain injury, a stroke, or some other neurologic event. And the reason Julie founded this organization is a very personal story and a heartbreaking one. But it's not the only heartbreak in her life. And I don't like overdramatic podcast intros, but this one honestly is, is hard to overdramatize. Because Julie's story and, and the story of her family involves a murder, suicides, suicide attempts, and a lot of other mental health struggles. And so I need to come out front with a really strong trigger warning for those things. We talk about some really serious stuff in this episode, but I also want you to know that this is an inspirational story, and I'm honored that Julie was willing to share it. So here's Julie Granger. Julie Granger, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I know a little bit about your story, um, but I want to start with you the same way I start with all of my guests, and that's just to ask you why you're here. How did you end up in the Amarillo area? Well, I was born here, um, born in Dumas, Texas, actually, okay. uh, not far from here. And my maiden name is Snedder John. So we have a very, very large, my dad is one of 10. And so wow, I have a okay. big, big family, um, mostly farmers. Uh, and so I grew up in Bushland and I moved away for a period of time for about nine years. And somehow Amarillo has sucked me back in, okay. in order to be closer to some family. Did so, you did you like go all the way through school here before you left? I did, yes, sir. I was started at Bushland at the time. Bushland didn't have a high school, right? So at that point, we were um, given the, the opportunity to either choose Randall or Tascosa. And my brothers were all—I'm the youngest mm-hmm. of four. My, I have three older brothers, and I just kind of followed their footsteps toward Tascosa. So that's where I ended up in high school. And then for college, I started out at Texas Tech and then somehow ended up in all over the place, really, um, and eventually ended up in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. When you thought about going to Tech or moving into college, did you know like what you wanted to do as a career? I mean, how did, how did that path work out for you? Not a clue. You know, I switched majors several times, just as you might imagine, um, but I had a rough start to college. Um, I lost my mom when I was, you know, in high school, I was a sophomore, Mm -hmm. uh, so I was 16 years old and, you know, it kind of threw me into a little bit of a whirlwind, um, quite a bit of a depression. And so I was lost for a long time. Yeah, I mean, anytime (laughs) a kid loses her mom, you know, whether it's high school, whether it's younger than that, that's hard. But like that, that formative time. Um, I think is especially, there's just such a loss associated with that. Yes. In in terms of ending up lost, not really knowing how to move forward from that. Yes. I just found myself feeling very overwhelmed, confusion, you know, just all the things that you experience when you go through a loss. And and so much so that when I first got to tech, um, that was a dark time for me. I mean, my last two years of high school, 
you know, I drank a lot, I, you know, just, I didn't make very good choices. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to tech, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of family close to me and I ended up with a failed suicide attempt. Okay. And, and that's actually what I realized in that moment when I woke up and I was still alive, um, that I needed help. Mm-hmm. And so from that moment, um, there was a good friend of the family, Scott Stixel, that I was pretty involved with through First Presbyterian. He was one of our counselors, and he recommended a place in Missouri, uh, actually just right outside of Branson. It was called Shelterwood, okay. and it was for young, troubled teenagers, basically. And, you know, it's funny, I, I was 18 at the time, um, but they were still willing to take me in. Okay. And that was a place where I was able to continue to go to college. Right. Had, had you been in college already at that point? Or was that before you left for tech? As soon as I went to tech, I kind of, that's where I fell into okay. just that whole. So it was pretty, pretty soon afterwards. Exactly. And I moved to Missouri. I continued to go to school at College of the Ozarks. Okay. And I was able to get counseling at that program that Scott recommended. And I, I'm so thankful for that because it really did save my life. Um, I needed, you know, to get one-on-one counseling. I had tried to get a little bit of that before that, but I just wasn't in a place where I wanted to break down all the things that were built up. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, the the benefit of leaving this area for that. I I know there's always an element of, I I just had to start fresh or I need to get out of this place where obviously you had a lot of kind of trauma um, related to being here because of your mom. And so what what role did that play in going away from here? Absolutely. I mean, for me, I needed to get removed from my surroundings. And Branson, Missouri is obviously a very beautiful place. Yeah. And I think just seeing um, God's creation outside of here was really good for me. There's a different type of creation up there oh. in terms of the natural world that we don't quite have here. Oh, no, we, absolutely. Trees, the the lakes, know, lakes, the trees. I mean, I just experienced a very beautiful time there that really I was in a good place. Mm-hmm. And I really did cling to Jesus. I mean, I really had to you know, come to my reality of, you know, I'm this young person that doesn't know what I want to do in life, Mm -hmm. you know, and I felt like my whole world around me was falling apart. And I think just being isolated and being with other people that were struggling. And I think that's where I can really come and I love community Mm -hmm. for that reason, because it is about coming together and experiencing things that you can relate to each other on a new level, and you build on that. You grow from it. And I think for me, I'm indebted to that whole counseling program there. Was it a religious program? I it mean, was. Did it have a, a spiritual component to it? It was. Okay. Yes, sir. It saved my life. Um, and that is actually where I met my future husband. Okay. And um, he ended up deciding that he wanted to go back to college and and then his family was from Arkansas, and so that's how we ended up making it the move to Arkansas and attending Arkansas State University. Okay, so you went back to school? Yes. And finished finished up a degree there? Yes, sir. Okay. What was the goal after that point? Well, um, he had a management information systems degree and also an accounting degree, and he was offered a... Um, it's like a mentorship program. Um, um, apprenticeship? It was an apprentice, something, something like work? that, yeah. But it was. It ended up. That's what ended up taking us to Chicago, um, just north of there. We lived in a place, uh, Haynesville, Illinois, okay. just uh, north of Chicago, and that's where I ended up finishing my degree. Was in downtown Chicago, and let me tell you, um, I was thinking about this as I was on my way here, just how eye-opening that experience was. When you come from a small town like Amarillo Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you're in a big city like Chicago, I didn't realize how naive I was Hmm. and just how small town uh, thinking I I was. Um, I hadn't experienced anything like it. And I definitely saw some experiences. In fact, my second day of college in downtown Chicago was 9-11. Okay. Wow. So, um, And that, I I remember that moment that all the big cities, especially like Chicago, which had, you know, the Sears Tower was so prominent, like those cities shut down too, because they were worried about the same thing. Yes. 
That's exactly. Um, and, and I meant to, it was an internship is what, okay. what I meant to go back to. And I couldn't think of the word that I was looking for. But yes, it was like a ghost town. Um, by the time I ended up leaving, because I'm, you know, I'm like, well, surely it's fine. You know, I had a quiz I had to take and, <laughs> you know, pro, like, I I don't know, you know, and I, I was really honestly thinking, I think I'm safer here than I would be going, rushing into Union Station, trying to make it onto the train and, yeah. and outside the city. Um, so I stayed. But by the time I left late that afternoon, you didn't see a cab on the street. There were no people on the streets. Mm-hmm. It was insane it was a ghost town and it was creepy i mean um you could hear a pin drop yeah so anyway you, you mentioned the that, that being in chicago was eye-opening having grown up in a, a, a less populated place like here um was it eye-opening for you in a i'm gonna leave behind this naive persona or was was there like a growth aspect of it where you were exposed to different kinds of people different culture all those different things i think it was more as i was exposed to a lot of different types of people and, and some of it, things that you, you would only see in a bigger city, some of the poverty level mm-hmm. things that, that go on. And, and we have some of that here too, but there was, it was a lot of that there. Um, but also culture. I mean, a lot of the friends that I had and it in, at school downtown were not from here, mm-hmm. you know, not from America even. So it was definitely a culture shock for me. You know, and the other thing that I found is I thought I was an aggressive driver (laughs) (laughs) until I moved there. Yeah. And I mean, people were blowing past me on the highway. I, I literally drove one day to downtown. And by the time I got down there and, and I was pregnant at the time. Okay. And by the time I got down there, I was so stressed out. And then you want me to pay to park? Like what? (laughs) <laughs> so, there's a reason public transportation in those places is such a popular absolutely and, and you know i realized that i was like okay this will be the last time that i drive and then i looked into the train station and figured out how to make all of that happen um the, the university that i was going to rush medical center had a bus that would pick people up and shuttle them from union station to okay. the university so what were you studying at that time uh clinical laboratory sciences okay um i my mother was a med-, med tech, and I just decided that, you know, I did love what she did, and I thought it would be a neat way to honor her mm-hmm. also, and and I did. I loved it. I didn't, when I got out of school, I immediately went to work for a small hospital in uh, Wisconsin, Aurora Medical Center is in Kenosha, All right. and that was a little bit of a stressful time. Uh, hospitals just are very stressful. Yeah. Everything's stat, you know. Um, I worked a lot of hours. Of course, at the time, I'm just getting out of college, and I was willing to put in that time. I was hired as a second shift person, but a lot of nights I worked into third shift because we were so short-staffed. And I started quickly looking at other job opportunities. And one of the things that I came across, and the dream to me, was working for a big pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. And I got my foot in the door as a contractor, not an employee, but I was happy to get my foot in the door, was with Abbott Laboratories. Okay. And I fell in love with that job. I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. Um, I felt like that was a very big time in my life that I it, I grew a lot and I learned a lot. I, I, I loved that I had two, both worlds. I could be in the laboratory running machines and putting samples through, doing all that, that testing. But I also equally loved that I could take the data that I'd just collected by running those samples through and sit down and put it into a spreadsheet and see all the results. Yeah. yeah. And so there was something really neat about having both sides of that world, and I loved it. And it wasn't near as stressful, you know, as being in a hospital. And, and that's one of the things. When I first moved back here, I moved away for about nine years. I had reached out to my mom's former boss for a job mm-hmm. at Northwest Texas. And, of course, he was like, absolutely, you know, and he was happy to have, have me. And, and, obviously, I was thrilled and excited. And so I moved back here and worked there for a, a period of time while we were establishing, um, you know, our own businesses. Okay. Um, you know, we moved back to be closer to family. What year was that that you came back here? We moved back in 2005. Okay. Um, so it was about a nine-year period. 
you know, once I kind of got our own businesses established, um, I did stop working for other companies. Um, and I was glad to have the flexibility because I had two pretty young kids that were at St. Andrews at the time. So let's, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of at least one part of your story that, that I know, um, we should probably talk about, uh, as much as you're willing. Uh, and that's your mom's death, uh, which I know, you know, you, you talked about its impact on you. Um, but it was it was even more traumatic than let's say a you know a, a parent who dies of a sickness or something like that. Can can you kind of tell listeners what happened? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, it was cold case for a long time. So we're we're finally and we'll get to that. I guess um, finally had some resolution to it. She we lived out in Bishop Hills at the time um, while I was going to school at Bushland and then eventually to Tascosa. I went to school. It was a normal day. I was a sophomore. Got pulled out of class later in the afternoon by my counselor, and I had no idea, but I knew it was serious by the look on her face. And when I got down to the office of Tascosa, I walked into a room, and I was my grandparents were sitting there, and you could tell they were distraught. And I got the news that my mother had um, had been shot, uh, so it was a homicide, mm-hmm. and that was pretty unheard of. Back in 1994. Well, especially out in Bishop Hills. You know. Bishop Hills, yeah. And, uh, you know, my mother didn't have an enemy. Like, she was loved by literally everyone. And so for something like that to have happened, you know, it was just just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, people didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. You know, and, and, and to be quite honest, when I first got pulled down there, my first thought of what it might be was something had happened maybe to my stepdad because he was a smoker and I had all, you know, I I just figured he drove a lot. He was a traveling salesman. I don't know. Maybe he had a car accident or maybe he had a heart attack. I don't know. But there was nothing in my mind that I ever, ever thought it would be something to do with my mom. Hmm. Uh, When, so I I know that that was a, that her homicide was, like you said, it was a cold case. Um, you know, I, tell me, tell me what that process went like because it. You, know, you, you mentioned your stepdad, but like you didn't immediately think, oh, something happened there. No, I didn't. In fact, you know, to be honest, he was the last person that I would have ever thought it would have been. Or, I mean, there was some suspicion. He had a terrible temper, you know, but he was a very, very good and supportive dad to me okay. as a stepdad. I mean, I loved him so much. There was a point that I was willing to have him adopt me and take his name because wow. he was that big of a role in my life during that time. I mean, my parents divorced when I was eight and, you know, my mom remarried to him and, um, I loved him. And so, and, you know, right after this happened, I mean, he continued I, I continue to live with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where the story gets just so crazy is how can somebody, he did end up getting indicted for her, her murder. It went cold. Um, 25 years yeah. it was cold. And we were able to, Potter County Sheriff um, Steve White was able to get a hold of um, the show Cold Justice with Kelly Siegler. And she... They brought their team in, did a super thorough investigation, talked to every single person that was either, you know, interviewed back then. Um, And, you know, people's stories were pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there were a few people that were willing to share more now because they don't have that connection with my stepdad any longer. And I think that worked to their advantage because they could really – some of the things that he told people, you know, um, and, and that episode's out there. People can look it up and, and watch it and really see the detail of what they've got, what they were able to get a hold of. Was there certain evidence that, that came to light that, that was not available back then or wasn't, uh, that the testing wasn't quite as thorough? Well, and that was the thing that we were hoping. Um, you know, obviously DNA testing was a tough thing to get because he lived in the home. Yeah. And there was never a gun recovered. Uh, and so... Without that hard evidence, it was very hard. It was always circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And that's why this went on for so long. 
but they were able to really pinpoint his locations, like where he was, and it all made sense. Yes, was it still circumstantial? It was, but it was enough to get an indictment. Hmm. And um, and to the day that they went and interviewed him, his arrogance level, it's just unbelievable to me how someone can can do what he did and and live with it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just... And well, it's live with the family, you know, uh, with Well, you. that, I mean, you know, because there was a point where, you know, insurance money came up, things kind of got weird. My brothers were like, You're, we're not staying here. We moved in um, with a, a f- friend of the family. And, and by the way, that was such a big deal because we all had friends, families that wanted to take us in. But this, this specific lady... Um, was God sent because she could take all of us in. We we didn't want to be in different places. Yeah. We all wanted to live together if, if possible. And she was able to do that for our family. And that was really a big deal. I had my own room. Like, hmm. you know, it was amazing what uh, this individual was able to do. Um, I don't think she'd mind if I shared, but Elaine Smith is that person. Okay. And I still love her to this day for all the things that she provided to our to our family and made us who we are. I mean, helped really mold us. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been able to get the counseling that I needed. Yeah. So, you know, every one of us are doing well today. I did end up losing a brother along the way. Um, Jody ended up um, taking his life actually at, out at Lano hmm. on her grave. Wow. Um, he just never really could get past it. You know, he needed closure and he never got that. Yeah. And, you know, he had a certain amount of anger and I mean, we all did, you know, how could you not? Right. You know, you, you go all these years without any answers and no one's been held accountable. And, um, he, it, it, it really dug at him and it's almost like he couldn't get past that period of his life. It could never move forward. And and I get it because I struggled too. What year did she die? She passed away in 90, 1994. Okay. And then what year was um, was the indictment? In the... Uh, 2020. Wow. Okay. And he was found guilty? Well, we never got to go to trial. So okay. he ended up taking his right. own life in addition. <laughs> um, he got... He fought coming back. He was living in Colorado at the time, and we ended up having to give get a governor's warrant to have him brought back here, extradited back to Potter County, uh, where we did eventually get that done. Hmm. Um, he literally stayed in jail for a very short period of time before someone else that he had manipulated, an, another ex-wife, bailed him out. Wow. And um, he was basically living with her. And that was tough for me. And and I didn't realize until after he passed away, what a huge burden that felt on my shoulders. Just knowing I I saw him at a toot and totem one day. It sounds dangerous. I mean, yeah, yeah. I saw him at a toot and totem one day. Like it was just, it's so, it was, I felt like I was constantly looking over my shoulder, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then, and I've got kids, like, I don't know what he's capable of, you know, obviously he's a, he was a sociopath and, and a very manipulative man. Before we started this interview, you you just told me about the value that therapy uh, had brought to you being able to move past all this trauma. I mean, because clearly there's there's a whole chain of it, you know, from from your mom's death to you to your brother to just living, you know, looking over your shoulder for so many years. Tell me how, like, the role that that therapy has played for you uh, and just dealing with that stuff because it seems like a lot we haven't even told your full story yet but it see this part seems like a lot it was a lot um you know I, I was young I was 16 you know and that was that's such a pivotal time I mean and my mom like we were very close um so to lose her and then to not really just only lose her was like then my stepdad who I trusted mm-hmm. I no longer had I did have a f- huge amount of things to tear down and process. And that was one of the things that I was just speaking to my, one of my brothers about this morning was I was able to go and get therapy, but I also learned the value of 
like journaling, putting my thoughts down in a diary. I remember just writing so fast. I mean, I, I couldn't write fast enough for my thoughts Hmm. because so many things I was upset about, angry about, bitter about, because, you know, I don't have my mom. You know, there's some things that you start to go through later in life. And I think one of the things that happened down the road that really hurt me was my first, my kids were born or, you know, and even getting married and my mom not being there. Sure. So many of those things. Milestones. That's... Yes. It was challenging to go through those and deal with them. But I do think that that was one of the things I did along the way. And I learned early on with therapy that I got in Missouri was you got to get it out, you know, because if you let it bottle up, it's harmful. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, not just physically, like it's physically harmful because that was the other thing. I was anorexic. I was bulimic. I over-exercised. Literally, I would get up at like four in the morning and go to Gold's Gym my last two years of high school. I was just trying to stay busy so I didn't have to think about the pain. Yeah. That was really unhealthy. Um, and, and I, I was 90 pounds hmm. by the time it was all said and done. And, and I remember my brother coming. He had gone on a, at a semester overseas um, through Texas Tech, I believe. And he came back for Christmas um, one year. And I don't know if it was my junior year or senior year. I think it must have been my senior year. But anyway, he walked in to give me a hug. And, and he just goes, he goes, oh, my gosh, Jules. He goes, you look terrible. And like, I think that was a breakthrough moment for Mm -hmm. me because it was like, I was never going to be thin enough. But when he told me how terrible I looked and he's an honest, honest person and it's somebody that I cared deeply for and it mattered to me what he thought. And so in that moment, that's when I switched from being anorexic to bulimic because I thought, okay, I have to eat. (laughs) I need to gain some weight. Uh, I've been told by my brother who I really love and care about um, how terrible I look. And uh, so then that shifted to um, bulimia, which is not better. Um, You know, anyway, it's been a long road. You know, there's, there's a, there's a culture here where Texas panhandle people, and, and this may even be stronger when you get out into the rural areas uh, that we can endure stuff. You know, we, we think of ourselves as resilient. Um, we're very pragmatic. Um, you know, the pioneer mentality. I can, I can get through this. And, and as a result, like, this is not a, a city where there's a lot of therapists. I mean, I hear all the time, we need more, we need more, we need more. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm interesting to hear from you, you know, just, just about the value of that. Uh, and, and getting through some stuff. Cause I, I feel like everybody could probably benefit from it, whether they've been through the kinds of extreme trauma that you have or not, uh, that, that, that go it alone mentality is, is rarely a healthy one. It's not healthy. And, and I'm with you and I thought I could power through too. And then, and then I ended up, like I said, a failed attempt at suicide. Um, and, and I worry about that even with, um, you know, with my brothers, you know, like we all dealt with trauma and I know, I mean, I was afforded to be able to go get some of this therapy, but they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was my brother, Jeremy, who found my mom. Wow. So he has a fair amount of things that I know he's probably not worked through, but should. And here's the thing. It's Jason, it's not, yes, I've had a really big tragic things happen. Um, but it's also, even if it's just small things, those small things add up in mm-hmm. people's lives and and it they turn into big things if you don't go through and process them and i am with you i do think we don't have enough resources here in our in, in our city and i know i know personally of friends that go other places to get different types of specific counseling and therapy right. that we don't have here and so that is definitely one of the things that later down the road we'll talk about. But we need additional resources in our area. We are too big not to have these yeah. things and well, people and, have to travel. And to be a hub for the rest of the Texas panhandle, too. I, I feel like we're making some better strides in that direction, especially in recent years. But I, I think it's been kind of baked into the culture for too long. Yes. And that's one of the things that uh, it's necessary to change. So I, I don't uh, – I appreciate you talking to me about that. 
uh, I know that's not the end of, of your story or an end of going through some very difficult family things. So let's talk about Sister Bear Foundation and sort of the the story leading up to the forming of that nonprofit. So um, my daughter and her friends, her best friend, Sarah Tucker, were in a car accident in 2018. Um, Sarah did pass away in the accident and Catherine was left paralyzed um, at the T3 level. So from her chest down. How old was Catherine at the time? She was 16, almost 17. And um, we learned very quickly the lack of resources. Again, you're talking about counseling, but neurological resources, we Hmm. don't have a lot of things here. And her and I made weekly trips to the Fort Worth area for seven months. Every week we made a trip um, to get specialized equipment and actual neurological therapy. Hmm. I mean, when we came back from Baylor um, the first time, we started doing some rehab at BSA right here just over off of I-27. But the thing is, it's not specialized neurological therapy. I mean, all the things that we were doing there were things that I, we could have done at home, mm-hmm. you know? And and it's not BSA's fault. It's just that's not what they do. Well, and, and part of it is the the number of patients who are going to need that. If, if they don't have, you know, enough of a patient base who require that specialized therapy – there's not a good financial reason for it, which is why you only find some of that in the much larger cities. Absolutely. And because, I mean, our family was afforded to be able to make those trips. Most people, I mean, we have 26 counties that surround us. What are those people doing when they have a tragic accident or a debilitating illness? Sure. Neurologically. I mean, if they can't afford it or, you know, or a family member can't take them somewhere else, they're sitting at home and they're probably feeling really overwhelmed and helpless, you know, and where's, where does that get them, Jason? It gets them, they're they're probably breaking bones, you know, or their caregiver is killing themselves trying to move them around. Mm -hmm. It's such a bad situation where people end up back in the hospital. It's a vicious circle is what it is. I mean, the goal of our foundation is we want adults in our area that have undergone uh, a tragic accident or a debilitating neurological illness to eventually have a place where they can continue to get long-term health and wellness with a neurological um, aspect. I mean, we just don't have that. We have all these gyms in town, right? but we don't have one place where they can go and continue because insurance, that was what we ran into. Insurance stopped paying for Catherine to continue to go and get physical therapy. Okay. But it's super important for those adults and, and people that are dealing with these situations to continue to move. They, you know, again, joints, bones, muscles, they all got to stay in good working order, especially for Catherine. I mean, she is a complete T3 injury. So most likely, I don't ever like to say this, but she'll probably be in a chair unless there is a surgery they can give her that's going to be able to um, connect her upper and lower spinal cord. Okay. Now, there are a fair share. Everybody's accidents are different, and their injuries are different. So there's a lot of uh, individuals in our city that have incomplete. These and They, can, they have the potential to walk again, hmm. Jason. We want to capture that. We want to keep them moving because... Good chance with the right equipment and specialized therapy and long-term wellness, they will walk again. And so it's a passion for me. I want to bring those resources here. Yeah. And we've been able to do that with one piece of equipment uh, with the robotic therapy called the Locomat. We've partnered with Northwest, and we've got that place there. Catherine goes on a weekly basis and is able to walk on that. And then we've also started our grants program. Uh, It's a personal assistance grants for people who need, maybe it's, they, let me go back to this. Um, When we first came home, our house was not accessible. Sure. So along the way, when people are recovering, there's lots of different needs that come along and that they might not know how to handle or what to do or who to call. So we want to be a resource for those people that what's the next step. Right. Right. Because our doors weren't wide yeah, enough. Yeah, it's the width of doors. It's 
handholds in the bathtub, ramps. shower, ramps everywhere. Yeah. All the things. And then, so we get that done. Then what's the next thing? Well, she wants more to be more independent. She's a college student. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she needs to be able to drive. So what, what does that look like? How do you get hand controls? We didn't know there was a class you had to take. I mean, we learned all these things along the way. But that's the goal of this organization is we really want to ultimately have a place where, again, community. Right. I'm a CrossFitter. What I love is I don't, I don't want to go in there and, and work out by myself. It's painful, right? But if I'm in there with other people and we're all doing it together, it makes it doable. Because that was one of the things I saw most with Catherine was when we were making those trips, we came in and there were people in that room that had been going for a while. And it was inspiring to her because she could see, I can get there mm-hmm. with more therapy. And then on the flip side of that, you know, we're coming and there are people coming in newer, fresher into their injuries than she was. And they are inspired by her. How good do you think that made her feel? Yeah. It was just, it was super great physically, but the mental and overall, her her wellness of her mental state was just changed because of how it was helping her to help other people. So I love that. I, I want to close this section by asking you a question about place and that, you know, initially when you were dealing with, with your own demons, you know, in college, you needed to get out of here to find healing. You know, your, your, your childhood had all of this, this negativity attached to it. Uh, but you ended up coming back here and coming back to the place where your family has been, you know, for so long. And, and now you've, you've started a nonprofit, you know, your, your daughter's moving forward, your family's moving forward because of the support of this community. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're continuing to invest in this community. And I, I wonder if you could talk about like what this area means to you and, and sort of how, what that looks like, you know, in, in the work that you do. Oh, I care a lot. Jason, I really do because I saw a need that, and that's the thing that I would have never have put myself in these shoes. Um, but the thing you didn't envision yourself starting a nonprofit no, or directing it or any of that, not in a million years, but, um, God did, he has a path for every one of us and we have the power to help and change and make things good for other people. And I have seen this community come together for this foundation specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, We did just hold our annual event recently and we, we grossed over $140,000. Initially, I remember feeling overwhelmed. Like I'm just a passionate mom. I don't know how to do this. I don't know the first thing about a nonprofit. Yeah, I didn't, but God kept putting people in my path. I mean, I, one of my board members is a nonprofit consultant. She helped me to get the 501c3 that we needed. Um, And then there were business owners along the way that have believed in it from the beginning. And that was a turning point again. And for me was when this manager of a business handed me a $10,000 check out of his own personal pocket. Hmm. And that was on top of a $5,000 check he gave through the business. That was when I thought, there's no backing out of this. Like, he believes in me, and he knows I can make this happen. And he has daughters that he, if they ever found themselves in, in this position that I was in, he wants them to have a place to go. And that was so inspiring to me to, to get that from the community, mm-hmm. right? Like, it motivated me even more. And then when you have as many people show up to the event that they that do every year, it is humbling. And people want, they just didn't know. I, I, that was the hardest part for me is that I had to educate people on what we don't have. Yeah. You wouldn't know. Because unless minute. they're in that position, they're no, not going to know. You don't. It's been humbling. And I gain, I gain more um, help every year from different people in the community. They go, you know what? I want to support this cause, even through Panhandle Gives. Yeah. I mean, we did that for the first time last year, and I had zero expectations, you know? I mean, but we set a goal of 50000 and we hit 50000 wow. because people want to see specialized equipment here. 
and that was the goal. And that really pushed us to be able to get that done this past year. So I love that. And the other thing I want to say about community is, you know, and through the things that I've experienced with Catherine and the accident is it was a frustrating thing. (laughs) When Catherine first moved out, she moved into an apartment and she would call me late in the evening when she'd just gotten home and she was incredibly frustrated because she couldn't get up to her apartment because somebody was blocking the access to the ramp. Yeah. My blood, Jason used to boil when I would get these calls from her because I couldn't do anything about it, you know, and that motivated me. (laughs) I saw these guys cruising around in this, um, handicapped patrol car one day and I followed them (laughs) And I, I'm sure they thought I was crazy, but I was like, how can I sign up to do what you're doing? <laughs> Citizens on patrol, right? Yeah. And I mean, these, these, they were probably, they're probably in their seventies, you know, and I'm, you know, in my forties and I want to be like on patrol. Like, how do I sign up for what you do? And they're like, really? You're serious? And he goes, here's the lady's number and give her a call. And and it's super easy to get involved. I took a class, you know, I got my brother involved and I carve out six hours a week to go hand out handicapped parking tickets, either blocking access or just illegally parked without a placard or a plate. It amazes me every week. I hand out between 18 and 27 tickets. And this is on a Monday, Jason, between the hours of uh, seven and like one. Okay. It's hard for me to, I can't imagine if I was out on the weekend or during the evening time, how many tickets I would be writing. It's that hurts my heart that there's, that's a moral problem. Like I don't, I can't understand. People often don't realize it unless they know somebody who is in a wheelchair and sees how big of a deal that is when they can't get there. It's a huge deal. Yeah. You know, and so, and I think that's one of the things that I want to make my next campaign. Yeah. It's save the spot, you know, don't be a jerk. <laughs> like, let's leave these, these spots for people that really need them. That's the thing too. I want to get with the city of Amarillo. There are so many places in the town, in the city that I can't issue a ticket because the sign's missing. It's too faded. You can't tell yeah. what the sign is stripes that you know the access there it doesn't exist i mean there are so many examples all over the city of things that need changing and if i can get with the city and say hey we can do this as a foundation and i can have volunteers going and replacing these signs how what do i need to do like i want to figure this out with those guys and to be honest i think there's a revenue um outlet for those guys. Yeah, I mean, so. you know, I mean, these tickets that I'm writing are $500 or $514. Now a majority of that goes to the state, but can we not give fines to, you know, these property owners that aren't taking care of business by getting their parking lots, you know, done the way that they're supposed to and signs up? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's one of the things that I'm really hoping to get on the on the uh, list for the city of Amarillo. Stay out of those. I want to improve our. Spots. I want to improve our city in, yeah. in so many ways. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics, which provides expert driven care starting at birth all the way to adolescence to help kids grow happy and healthy. And because the doctors at Texas Tech Physicians are also leading educators and researchers. Children across the Panhandle have access to accomplished pediatric specialists, and they're right here in Amarillo. In fact, there's 11 different specialties from cardiology and neurology to oncology and neonatology. You can get the care your child needs, and you can get it close to home. Learn more by visiting texastechphysicians.com. Hey Amarillo is also supported this week by Blue Handle Publishing and its new thriller, Perdue. A Maria Perdita Suspense by former podcast guest and local author Charles D'Amico. Perdue releases in just a few weeks and it's a spinoff of D'Amico's Neil Baggio books. And in this novel, a confident former CIA officer with a new identity uses her elite skill set to take down a local crime ring in New Orleans. Learn more at bluehandlepublishing.com. 
Okay, back with Julie Granger. Julie, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes Native American artifacts that were excavated from Paladura Canyon that have been dated to almost 10,000 years old. Archaeologists believe humans have lived in this region for at least 14,000 years, which is an incredibly long time. Uh, so you can see some of these artifacts, projectile points and stone tools and all that stuff at the museum, or go to panhandleplains.org. Okay, so the first question is, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Well, and we've talked a little bit off off the camera about this, but um, strong leadership. You know, I want to mm-hmm. continue to see really good, strong leadership in our community and more collaborative efforts to make Amarillo a place where you can get all the resources okay. for whatever it might be. We're big enough that we ought to be able to do that. And I and I think in the short period of time that I've been doing some things, I've seen where, you know, you got one guy that just doesn't want to get on board. But let's all, can we collaborate and make it a better place so we can have all the things that people need right here and not have to travel outside the yeah the city for. And one place I started to see that happen that is, is really encouraging. You know, we have so many nonprofits in this area that do a lot of different things. Uh, and it's really easy to kind of get siloed, you know, focus on your thing and do your thing. But I started seeing nonprofits working together. Uh, the Panhandle Gives is a really good um, example. example of mm-hmm. that uh, to to collaborate with each other, to raise money with each other, to, to combine their interests into bigger bigger projects. And, and that's really encouraging. I love that. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, is I see a f- couple other nonprofits. Obviously, I didn't want to start my own, so I had already kind of looked at mm-hmm. the different things that exist already. And there is a lot of collaboration with what I'm doing also through, we've got Joe Chris Rodriguez with One Chair at a right, Time. Sure. And then we also have Coben Puckett with the Press On Foundation. So we have, and, and, and we we talk, you know, I know Coben. Those are very I, I talked natural, to Coben yesterday. Yeah, it's real natural. Yeah, and so there is a lot of great collaboration, but I also wish we could see more of that in the medical side. Okay. So. All right, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Flies. <laughs> <laughs> right now, yes. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because of our feed yards. I don't know what that is. But Everybody's <laughs> waiting for the weather to cool down just to get rid of the flies. That's all we want. It seems really bad this yes, year. Yes, they're terrible. What does this area not have enough of? Trees, obviously. Right. And I, I pointed that out earlier. That earlier and Somebody that's... who spent time in the Ozarks. Yes. Say that. Yes. Okay. Uh, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Well, <laughs> I typically, you know, talk about um, how dry, hmm. flat, and windy it is but also how incredibly beautiful our sunsets are and how you can see forever. I love that about Amarillo. I wish we had more moisture, but our sunsets are something to just, they're amazing. It's beautiful. We complain about the trees, but if we had a lot of trees, you wouldn't see those sunsets. I mean, I've noticed that anytime I've traveled somewhere, I've just been like, I think the sun is setting back there, but I can't see anything. Yes, and that's a a good point. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. What's your favorite local mural? You know, downtown is starting to get so many neat things down there. I don't know that I really have a favorite. They're all just so beautiful and unique. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I can't say that I have a, a favorite one off the top of my head. Okay. so I think that's legitimate because yeah. once you have this many, you know, it's, it's hard yeah. to choose a favorite. There's it is. So many of them are cool. What's your favorite local restaurant? Well, for lunch, <laughs> it would be Scott's Oyster Bar. Okay. And for dinner, um, I love Italian at Pescara's. Okay, uh, those are two. Uh, those are two good choices. Scotts has not gotten uh, too many mentions on the show, and it's just one of those places that has been there forever, has really not changed in no. years and years, uh, no. and it's got a very loyal clientele. Absolutely, and it's still run by the same people. Yeah, and it's, it's like they're in there working it. it. They're in there working <laughs> every time I go in there. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I'd have to say Roasters. I I do love coffee. Um, I'm not strictly Roasters, but I do I do love their coffee. Um, for tea, I do tend to, you know, it's not not local, but I do like the Starbucks tea. Okay. But for a coffee, definitely Roasters. Is there a, a location of Roasters that you go to most often? I tend to be on. Um, 
into Bell. Uh, was it 45th and Bell? Okay, yeah. There's that location over there, and that's um, you know where I t- tend to stop, especially when I'm on patrol for handicap parking, because that is a big abusive parking lot where people park in the handicap spot right Okay, away. over there by uh, <laughs> by United. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, hang out there a lot. I believe it. All right. So now everybody knows. <laughs> don't don't park. Be in those. very attentive there. <laughs> okay. And when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Okay, I did have to put a, some thought into this, and um, it's been seven years. And I know okay. that sounds That's really very specific, yeah. terrible, but it was. Um, we went there for a friend's um, birthday, okay. and but that was seven years ago, and it's hard to believe that it's been that long. So, well, it, you know, it hasn't changed much, other than uh, it's a little bit easier to get there because they've uh, they've worked on some of the the trail going into the Cadillacs. Yes. So. Yes. All right. Well, Julie, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Uh, well, if you're talking about Amarillo in specific, obviously Powder Canyon is a beautiful place to go. I had family recently in town um, for the event that we had this this just a little bit ago. And Paladero Stable, the horse stable, yeah. they did the riding again. And they did it the last time that they came. And their girls were older, and that's something that they really, really enjoyed. Yeah, I would recommend Paladora Stables. Okay. Go, go, go get some horseback riding out in the beautiful Paladora Canyon. That's a, that's a good one. I did that when I was a kid with my dad, and I have not done that since. And it it's was so cool. fun. It was cool, yeah. It's so fun, and they take some beautiful pictures when you're all on the horses. And, you know, and that was one of the things that little Maddie was like, Mom or Dad, I was too young that they wouldn't let me ride my own horse. So when they came back this year, she got to get on her own horse. And, and so that made it a super special time for our family from Arkansas. Okay, good. Well, Julie Granger, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Julie. I'm just so grateful for her honesty and her openness in the interview. If you're struggling with mental health or thoughts of suicide, help is available. Call 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, 24 hours a day. It's always free and confidential. Learn more about Sister Bear Foundation at sisterbear.com. That's sister-bear.com. I want to say thanks to sponsors Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics, Mind and Child's Parenting 101 course, Blue Handle Publishing, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, all of whom supported this episode. Thanks also to Broderick Adams for editing this episode. I'm so thankful for guests who are willing to go into detail and share their personal stories like Julie did on this show. It's such a privilege to get to do this kind of thing. So thank you for listening. Thank you for giving purpose to this platform. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 272. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.